Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to episode two of Underground Nights uh, with me, Paul Field, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mr. James Mullinger in Canada. Hi, how are you doing, everyone? I'm living the dream. I hope you are too. Cool. And we have a special guest today, Josh Legary, producer, writer, director, podcaster. Welcome, Josh. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be on your show. Oh, th- thanks cool. for doing it. We're, we're, we're big fans and we genuinely appreciate it. Thanks, mate. Oh, cool. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed your first episode, so... Looking forward to being part of the second one. Awesome. This one will be better. (laughs) Josh, do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself briefly? Yeah, so I uh, started out um, trying to figure out how to become a film director uh, without any kind of connections or ways, avenues into the film industry. Um, I started working um, in art departments on film crews, and I worked on probably a dozen really lame, low-budget indie films. Uh, and kind of worked my way up to a production designer before I realized there's no way to work your way up to directing. So I started over at that point and uh, just directed my first documentary, which was Clean Flicks. And I did that with a friend of mine, Andrew James. And um, we, since then, have kind of split ways and he's doing his own thing and I'm doing my own thing in terms of documentary work. Um, but I'm also working toward directing uh, some fictional stuff as well, so... Um, I also podcast, as you mentioned. I've, I do three podcasts. I'm on a Movie Streamcast, which is a really short podcast where we talk about content that's streaming online. A horror movie podcast where we go in-depth and talk about horror themes and franchises. And then I, I produce the sci-fi podcast and, and stop in there every once in a while. But I'm not really a sci-fi guy, so I just talk about the big the big stuff with them, like Star Wars or whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, I've listened to the the, the, the movie podcast and the horror movie podcast, and wow, some of those are, are really in depth. And you know, you're like f- four hours is about yeah. with, without without you know catching a breath. <laughs> they, they are really a labour of love. Shall we uh, dive into some news? This has not been a good week, guys. No. Not a good week at all. First, you know, we've lost Angus Scrim, we've lost David Bowie, and then today, just to you know, for a, a really terrible hat trick, we've we've lost Alan Rickman. Thoughts, guys? Hey. You, um, Josh, I'm guessing you were fans of all of those. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, um, the Phantasm series was not something that I followed super closely, but friends of mine did, and um, we were going to be covering it on the horror movie podcast, and that was something that always haunted me. I just re- I would be over at friends' houses and they'd be watching that on a sleepover or something, and and I'd have terrible nightmares about the thin man, um, or the tall the man ball rather. That got me, yeah, the tall man. But it was that ball with the spikes that popped terrifying. out. Always freaked me out. Yeah. Uh, Rickman, of course. I mean, Rickman is one of the great 
talents, um, probably one of the best actors of his generation. So it's a huge loss. And Bowie, of course, is multi-generational. I was talking to my kids uh, about Bowie, trying to introduce them and, and, and make up for where I've failed as a parent thus far, uh, showing them all of the, the hidden gems of David Bowie. And somehow we got talking about um, Nirvana's cover of The Man Who Sold the World. And I thought, man, the, he really... You know, he started in the 70s. He was there in the 80s, the 90s, 2000s. Then his last album came out six days ago as of the time of this recording. So yeah. pretty incredible and just a great artist. He, he, he couldn't really have art directed his life in any better way. I mean, it's, it, yeah. it's, it's you know, I mean, it's why he's a hero to so many heroes. Like every great person that we all look up to looks up to Bowie. And I don't know if you saw that. Uh, that meme that was that was doing the rounds uh, probably six months ago, but it was a quote from Bowie from you know what twenty years ago when he was talking about what the music industry will be like in twenty years, and obviously not he wasn't specifically naming obviously Apple and iPods and iTunes and all the rest of it, but everything he said was absolutely spot on in the way that we would all be consuming music and art and everything else now, which yeah. is uh, an incredible uh, mind to be able to predict that. Yeah, I saw a little video. I think The Guardian put it out, but it was him talking about the internet, and the interviewer was just incredulous. Like, no, this is just a new tool. This isn't really going to change any of the way we actually consume things. And yeah. Bowie was telling him, no, it's going to change everything. It's going to change our lives, the way we live our lives. I thought yeah. that was pretty fascinating. It's true. It's been a sad week. It's, it, it, it's interesting. I mean, Alan Rickman, obviously, like most people, you know, ad admire him greatly um, and, and have been something of a fan. You know, al although the films that I probably love him for are the ones that it's not in any way cool to love him for, like films like Love Actually. Um, <laughs> and, you know, uh, this is obviously the day that every single person in the world that we know on Facebook trots out there. I once shared a dressing room with Alan Rickman and... And there's zero of any relevance or importance there. It's like, yeah, we love him too. You know, stop making it about you, you talentless talent vampire. Uh, um, but <laughs> I, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you my Rickman story. Yeah. I, 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 I've been an eBay fiend for years. Like, I've funded myself to the university uh, by buying... I've always collected VHS tapes, but this was 15 years ago when I, when I started realising that you could pick up a copy of Jack the Ripper for, for, for a pound at the charity shop and sell it for $300 on eBay because you couldn't buy that, that Jack the Ripper with Michael Caine in America. Anyway, to, cut, to cut a long story short, I used to obviously do my research and see what was selling for big figures. There was two Alan Rickman collectors, two or three, one in America, one in England, who would basically, they had to own every Alan Rickman transparency, every photograph. Now, this just seems bizarre now, given how eBay's kind of so oversaturated because everybody's selling stuff on there and no one knows what's rare. But I you pretty much bought my first flat with the fact that I would get a transparency or a photograph of Alan Rickman and sell it on eBay for up to a thousand pounds. Wow. Like the, <laughs> because these two, it was, and as is the case, people always say to me as a collector, people always go, oh, What's rare? What's collectible? Or you go to someone's house and they go, oh, look, I've got Star Wars figures. They're, they're worth a fortune. It's like, well, everything's only worth what someone's willing to pay for it. So tell me, what was this, what was this press photo of Alan Rickman worth? Well, it was worth two pounds. But find two idiots that both have a lot of money who both want it. Suddenly it's worth a thousand pounds. Uh, I guess I guess for me, the, my, my story about Alan Rickman is simply that Alan Rickman basically supported me through many, many difficult years. <laughs> by having a lot of mental fans that had way too much money. 
Anyway, sorry. Wrestling. That's wonderful. Yeah. That's it. I mean, for me, I, Alan Rickman, my favourite performance will always be Dogma for playing. <laughs> Probably, you know, he's just so pissed off the whole time through the whole movie, and I love it. I do love a nice grumpy bastard. <laughs> that was funny. I mean, you guys actually alerted me to his death. I didn't find out about it till I was reading the agenda for this podcast, and I was, I was gonna say, although looking back, I, I did notice my Facebook and Twitter feeds had a uh, quite a lot of unexplained quotes from. Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves in them, but uh, yeah, Die Hard I, it has to be the, my first yeah. uh, time I ever saw Rickman, and I was a pretty early age that I saw him, and um, he was kind of cemented in my brain from a very early time. Yeah, yeah, that's an unforgettable performance, and that's the one that we remember. Which is interesting that Die Hard was arguably the best Christmas movie of all time, and the film that we're going to be talking about at length, Making a Murderer, is probably the Christmas movie of 2015. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys, we'll move on. The Oscar noms yeah. out today. Any thoughts? Any surprises? Well, I've got to tell you, the first thing I thought when I saw George Miller and Mad Max, which incidentally, I actually haven't yet seen the Mad Max Fury Road. I've heard it's amazing. I know I love it. It's just come on the movie network, so I will probably see it tonight. But I had a flashback to about five years ago. I was on a on a like a red carpet junket thing, interviewing the cast and director of Happy Feet Two. And George Miller, <laughs> the director of Happy Feet Two, came along and told me that he was in the process at the. And he, I mean, this, and obviously this guy is old. He was there. Who this this eighty year old man stood there and said to me, "I'm working on a new Mad Max movie." And I thought, <laughs> "Yeah, good one." <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was picturing this kind of, and as a fan of the Mad Max movies, and I'm a fan of all, you know, these kind of post-apocalyptic movies from the new Barbarians to the new Gladiators. I can honestly say I did not think this man, this director of Happy Feet 2 was off about to make one of the best movies of 2015. And he mm-hmm. fucking did it. <laughs> Absolutely, he did. That knocked me on my ass. I I could not believe what was I was seeing when I went into the theater. I mean, it is so high octane and it's so many steps above in terms of energy of even any of the previous Mad Max films. I mean, it's just off the charts. Um, and I'm not someone who loves action films either. Actually, I get pretty bored with them. Um, yeah. if the action is an advancing story, but this, the whole thing is action and the, and the action is telling the story and there isn't much dialogue but it is a true movie. It is moving the entire time, and it's pretty incredible. I can't wait. I can't wait. It did really well. It's picked up 10 noms in total. Yeah. That's insane. I was but... surprised by Bridge of Spies. I hate that movie. It was the most boring movie I've ever seen, and I was really <laughs> bummed out to see that it got not only a best picture, but best uh, was a writing from the Coen brothers. Of course it's the Coen brothers, but, right. man, that is a such a boring movie. I don't think I'll see it. I mean, I, it's one of those things like, I mean, it, there's so many great films to, to see now. And of course, you know, without wanting to do, to do a very obvious, you know, segue into what we're doing, but, but like, you know, there's so many amazing documentaries that yeah. none of us have even heard about yet, uh, are waiting to be discovered that can, that can impress us in so many ways and sucker punch us. When I see a film like Bridge of Spies with a fucking title like that, like talk about a, uh, a generic, pulpy, 1940s, paperback, dog-eared book outside a charity shop title. And then, you know, Spielberg, <laughs> Hanks, fucking Spies, Yawn. Like, I, I, I don't think, I will, I will never see that film. And I'm so pleased to hear 
what you just said because I'm glad I'm glad that I'm right for thinking. That. Yeah, and I'm the guy I would I'm the guy who would buy that pulpy novel. Like but, I I no. love espionage, I love politics, I right. like a good mystery thriller, suspense. This has none of that. It's just right. so boring. Right. I really liked it. What? <laughs> what? Serious. I love all that Cold War stuff. I did too, but I, I can't imagine a more boring like Cold War story. There's a really cool um, Cold War thing that's being shown on UK TV at the moment. It's called Deutschland 83. Mm. I don't know if it's going to come to the States. It's like a, a sort of Cold War Berlin Wall coming down drama. It is really good and really good fun. So maybe you should try and uh, hunt that down, Josh. Will do. Will do. And, and obviously, I, I'm not saying which one of you is right and which one of you is wrong, but, but, but the one thing that's, that, that's undeniable is that there is a curse, and especially, and it possibly is because of, of the excitement of, of, of most documentaries, but there is a curse amongst Hollywood movies at the moment of, of a lot of them just being fucking boring. I mean, I mean, and for example, in this movie, which, which was nominated, is a good movie, the, the, the Big Short, right, which I went to see um, last week, uh, really enjoyed it, but the only reason I went to see it at the cinema was I knew, possibly because of my own attention span, that if I watched that at home, I'd never get through it. So I had to go and see it at the cinema. I was surprised <laughs> not to see um, Tarantino at least get a writing nomination. That's where they usually give him, throw him a bone. So um, I wasn't mad on the, on the, we weren't going to get to the hateful eight, but I, I wasn't a massive fan. It was near the bottom of the list list for, for Tarantino for me. I struggled with it because I thought it was, a, it got cheap a few times. Um, and I thought there were a few moments that were below the quality of the rest of the picture, but um I don't know, I th- I, I, it's definitely one that's grown on me since I saw it. I'm going to move this along, guys. To best actor is is DiCaprio going to going to grab this one for the Revenant? Let me see who else is on there. I don't know. Damon has a pretty good shot at that one as well. Eddie Redmayne ain't getting it for the Danish girl because I saw your before. tweet about that. That is ridiculous. He was oh, even it's just he just he goes hee <laughs> And that's you're, you're supposed to be de- dealing with like these serious transgender yeah. issues. And I, you know, recently I've seen Tangerine, and I've been watching Series yeah. Two of Transparent, which both deal with that in a really real kind of in-your-face way. And the Danish girl is one of the worst, fluffiest bits of mm. nonsense. Your nan would be offended by it. It's mm. just I, mean, I mean, the other thing is, is that people obviously criticise Redmayne for the fact that you know he had the nerve to play someone with with Hawking's illness. Uh, and then, of course, you know, reap great demands for basically, you know, spazzing up for for, for a production. To then to then move straight into uh, possibly the most contentious issue right now, which is you know, transgender actors yeah. not getting the you know to, to move into the, to, to that. I mean, talk about um, being a, a, a glutton for punishment. And I think even the academy, even though it's predominantly old white men, I think most of them are going to see the backlash that would occur if a non-transgender actor won a, for a, a film like that. Especially after the Jared Leto controversy, which you huh? uh, would think would have maybe squashed that. I know. That, that's what I, th- I thought was odd, because I, I, as I understand it, the, the, the show um, Transparent, the reason that it's so successful is that, that they use a lot of transgender people in the film, on the writing team and everything else. Possibly because it's the right thing to do, or possibly because it's a very smart PR move. Because really, but as you say, the Jared Leto thing—I mean, he's he's never going to live that down. I'm surprised that Redmayne hasn't had the same kickback yet. Mm, yeah. Okay, moving on very briefly. Best director, I, I think oh, this is a tough one. I I think the Revenant might pick it up again in Rati. Yeah, I think so as well. Miller did an incredible job with moving pictures, though I will say. Yeah. 
And the other thing is, I mean, every, you know, everyone loves an outsider. They love they love a curveball, and you know, to give it to a, a seventy eight or eighty year old is man who, as I say, three years ago was made four or five years ago was making happy feet too. Right. Uh, there's something about that. But again, the thing with the Revenant is just. Again, I mean, I've, I've read enough, but the, the brutalness of what they put themselves through to, to create that film, mm -hmm. just, you know, that, that has to be at the forefront of, of, of people's minds, right, rightly or wrongly. And, and it's weird that the, for DiCaprio, that, that actually, even though we all, uh, everyone has different opinions on him, but it is interesting that, that I think because of Titanic, we have, if some people think of him as slightly fluffy, he is an incredibly serious actor in that he's never done a superhero movie. He's never done a rom-com. He's never, he's never gone down an easy path, which is quite remarkable because that isn't the thought of him that people have, I don't think. Yeah, I think he learned his lesson with Titanic. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you know, I've never seen Titanic. <laughs> you're you're <laughs> really going to be fine. Just... <laughs> Last one, best actress. I, I've looked through this and Charlotte Rampling for 45 years I mean, I have to say, her performance in it is absolutely amazing. However, the film itself is really boring. <laughs> <laughs> really boring. It's just this this couple sort of chattering away in a kitchen for the for for, the, for most of the film. But you totally believe she is who she you know she's portraying on the screen, and it was it's it's mesmerising. But the actual story in the film itself is really dry and dull. Yeah, it's funny when that happens, isn't it? It happens quite a lot where you get a movie where you where you you're admiring it, but you're not in any way enjoying it, and it's quite a yeah. tearing process. Given what we all love about film is that it entertains us and inspires us, and and it's an odd thing when you're watching something going, well, I appreciate this, but I'm I, I just want to turn it off. Okay, in part two, we're going to be looking at uh, what's turned out to be a bit of a Netflix phenomenon, which is the 10-part documentary series, Making a Murderer. The story of Stephen Avery and uh, his uh, woes down in uh, Wisconsin. Um, guys, what are we thinking? Never going to Wisconsin. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. If I am going, I'm going to like post excrement through sheriff's doors and that kind of thing, <laughs> uh, yeah. which which could actually be a thing. I saw lots of stuff on the internet this week about people in Wisconsin saying, "Oh, it's terrible. You know, no one's going to come to our town anymore." And it's like, well, you know what? They probably will because these people want to come and campaign. People want to come and rummage through court documents. People want to come and, as I say, throw excrement. Vigilante justice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's beyond insane. I mean, it's weird because it is the ultimate. It was the ultimate Christmas movie. We all watched it over Christmas. It's all anyone talked about. I think more than any other film since Facebook began, my feed was was and is just littered with stuff. Yeah. I think the most interesting thing is, is, is for me is that having seen it, and then of course every single you know do good of sharing things on your wall, saying, "Oh, what what making a murderer didn't tell you." And without fail, every single one of those articles that have a list of 10 things making me didn't tell you, it did tell you, or all those <laughs> things are so irrelevant, it didn't tell us for a reason. Like, right. oh, you know, Stephen Avery told another a jailmate that he was going to rape and, and, and murder a woman. Did he now? Where's the recording? Oh, there isn't one. Well, that'll be why it wasn't <laughs> included, because a bloke doing life made up a bullshit story. 
you know, oh, brainwashing, right? You know what I mean? But what did you guys think? What, what was your what was your kind of afterthought when when you finished it? Well, I agree with you that this is the first thing that really it's it's interesting. I think. Well, I don't know how uh, how much the uh, podcast serial traveled. I don't know if that was a big deal in Canada or the UK, but. Um, um, only in the every article I read said it's like making it's like the Jinx and Serial. So I'm actually now one episode into Serial because of this, because every article about it mentioned. Yeah. yeah. Well, Serial, I will say for me personally, is not nearly as good as making a murder. But what it did do is it it was kind of the thing that um, got everyone listening to podcasts. It was it was the moment that podcasts broke in the United States at least. And um, it was the thing that everyone was listening to. And I think making a murder is that for streaming content. This is the first time that a show has been on Netflix that really captured the nation and, and it seems the world's imagination and got everyone on there streaming uh, the same thing at the same time. So I think it is very significant in that way. And I think it's interesting that both of those things are true crime stories. And I think that they in tandem have elevated true crime because i think a lot of the true crime that we've seen and again i'm sorry i can only speak to the united states on this but a lot of the the true crime shows that we see on cable television are pretty sleazy pretty lowbrow in terms of um entertainment value exactly and um we've had some good ones i think things that preceded this like the staircase uh the sundance channel uh miniseries is very much like making a murder however it wasn't a cultural phenomenon as well. And so I think this is interesting. I'm really curious how this will impact uh, the movie landscape or the, or the streaming uh, television series landscape. But um, yeah, I mean, it was, I, I thought it was an incredible piece of work of, of nonfiction storytelling as well. And to think it's, you know, it's 10 hours, which when you, when you think it's not just like everyone we know has seen and, and adores Paradise Lost, one, two, and three, and aware yes. of it. But you go outside of your movie circle. Most people haven't heard of Paradise Lost. Like most of, you know, I go to a dinner party, most people won't have heard of it. So it's an odd thing yeah. that you've got this kind of somewhat, by comparison, accessible two and a half hour documentary uh, as the original was that most people haven't heard of. And yet making a murder of it is 10 hours you've got to commit and yet <laughs> everyone has seen it from your postman through to the guy that shovels the driveway you know so that to me is just remarkable that suddenly to get that and if and if you if you released a 10-hour film it would be the most you know one-off midnight showing art house crowd absolutely yet every tom dick and harry in the world is is, is devoted 10 hours to watching something that didn't have, you know, a romantic lead or, or indeed, let's be honest, a, an ending. And I haven't got to the end of Serial, but as I understand it, the one thing these two things have in common is, is that they're essentially about fair trials and uh, memory and, and, and the unknown in that mm -hmm. making a murderer doesn't have an ending. He does, a, obviously, it's all doom and gloom. He's still there. And B, no one has any idea what happens still. Yeah. It's really, you know, it's just mind blowing, and I think for some of us who watched Paradise Lost when it when it came around, it's it's a little bit of deja vu, you know, watching these documentaries and these poor bastards are still yeah. locked up. This it's just been a phenomenon, as you said. Everyone's watching this, and people who I know wouldn't wouldn't dream of watching a documentary. They are fully on board with this. I wanted to ask you, Josh. Actually, it's ten years of filming. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. For this? Yeah. Exactly. How does the mechanics of that work? I mean, how do, do they just drop in and out? I mean, how do these guys support themselves? I mean, they must have to eat. So I, I just read. I haven't read much on it, but I did read that it's a it's a couple filmmaker, uh, 
a lesbian couple from New York came to, they heard about the case on the news. After came, he got released, wasn't it? It was after he got released the first time. Obviously. That's right. After he was released the first time, they came down to cover the story and they hoped they'd be there for a couple of weeks. Um, ended up staying for 10 years. And there was at one point they had, they had rented a home there. They were living there. So, um, yeah, I mean that it takes, a, it's a lot of work and I'm, I'm assuming most of that was unfunded. I'm assuming most of that work was out of, out of pocket and, um, knowing that they have the story well, yeah, of a 10 years ago, yeah, they hadn't sold this to Netflix, had they? I mean, what, James, what were you doing 10 well, years ago? Right. I mean, but the one thing I wasn't thinking was that one day we'd be paying seven ninety nine a month to have access to hundreds and thousands of movies and we'd be choosing <laughs> a 10-hour documentary on a, a bloke from Wisconsin. No, <laughs> uh, it, it's quite remarkable. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to know. And I've seen them say, you know, they didn't know what they were going to do. Were they going to do a, a two-hour film? And, of course, there has been debates you know, could the show have been shorter? You know, was it was it too long? Would it have served better as a as a two hour film? And part of me during the, the the ten hours did feel like, come on, come on, let's get to it. But in actual fact, given the unfair, I think, criticism they've had for leaving things out, um, it bloody well did need to be ten hours because people are complaining about the most the smallest of things being left out. And one of the things I really want to ask you, Josh, as a documentary filmmaker. How do you feel when you see these, um, and, in, and in a lot of cases it's Kratz and people, Ken Kratz and people like that saying this, or, you know, Nancy, Grace, whatever her name is, I mean, just completely ill-informed people. Right. But what do you think when you see uh, idiots uh, accusing <laughs> the, the, the filmmakers of being kind of one-sided or uh, brainwashing or, or not, you know, as a documentary filmmaker, does it, does it hurt you to see that? Or do you think there's some truth to it? Uh, when you watch I mean, there different filmmakers have different motivations. I would say based on what I saw, they attempted to tell a fair story. I know from my own experience um, with clean flicks and another film I'm working on right now called plan two for one, which also has some true crime elements. It's very hard to get the cooperation of everyone. And yeah. so if you are trying to, um, if you're trying to, let's see, how, how should I say this? Present your film with an un, uninflected tone. If you're not trying to control the way, the, the perspective from which the story is being told, you do rely a lot on your subjects. And if certain people aren't willing to talk to you, like the yeah. DA was not in making a murderer, what are you to do about his story? Well, you tell the story based on news clips and what other people are saying about him. And if he's unwilling to comment, what else can you do? Yeah, and then he comes out of the woodwork now and lies and says, you know, they oh, I wasn't asked to be involved. And of course, they provide proof that, that he was. I mean, it does seem from, from as an outsider who's obviously now tried to read as much as possible that I've not read a single valid kind of uh, it was one-sided argument or they missed this out argument. I've not heard any evidence post having spent way too many hours reading this stuff <laughs> right. that, that has led me to think anything other than, than what I saw on screen. And also the one thing that we all kind of would have to admit with Paradise Lost 2 is one of the only foot or steps wrong that they made was they did start the, they did start pointing fingers at other suspects, um, yeah. which I believe uh, Joe has, has, has tried to defend and say, look, we're, we were just depicting what other people were saying. But there was definitely implication. I think it was um, one of the boys' stepfathers. They start quite heavily... Yeah. 
hinting at it was him. Mm. And then suddenly in three, they're like, oh, no, no, not him, this one. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, so, sorry, guys, pack up, your, pack up your, 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 your carrier bags full of shit you're about to throw at him and, and, and you know, send the lynch mob home. It's not this one, it's this one. But what that at least should show us as observers of the terrible American justice system, apparently, what? is that there's at least a reasonable doubt there. If, yeah. we, if we can make good cases for all these other suspects and we have decent defenses for others, there's at least a reasonable doubt. And that's, that's what I can at least say in the Stephen Avery case. I've gone back and forth myself as to whether or not I thought he may have been involved, but, uh, but there's a doubt there. And if that's what we're basing this on, then... Exactly. Have you guys kind of gone into some of the theories that are online about potentially who did do it and the, the kind of the finger certainly being pointed towards sort of Bobby Dassey yeah. and Scott yeah. Tadich. Yeah, they seem the most suspicious Who... to me as well. Yeah, I mean, they gave each other, they are each other's yeah, alibis. Alibi. Uh, yeah, they got caught on numerous lies. They have a history of that, of that kind of behavior. Access to the property, and they're gleeful about the fact that Stephen Avery is going to jail for this. Well, going to prison. exactly, right? Yeah, it's... I mean, so a thing like that, and I guess it's that thing where you don't want to start, you know, being a vigilante uh, lynch mob uh, mentality. But what you do, what you say is, is that investigate them. Like, like we're yeah. not the professionals. We're just saying you, the professionals, the cops, the, the sheriff's office, do your duty and, and just investigate them. And that's really the biggest problem is that, I mean, the fair trial thing is one thing, but it's also that no one else was investigated. And of course, you know, it's very unfair that, you know, for people to start pointing the finger too heavily at, at the brother and the ex-boyfriend if they have befallen a, a, a tragedy. But at the same time, if any one of us, anyone close to us dies, the first thing that the police are supposed to do is check out the family so that they can be, uh, you know, quote, um, eliminated, eliminated from the inquiries. So the unfortunate thing actually for Theresa Halbach's family is that because the police didn't do their job and eliminate them from the inquiries, they are still now needing to be inquired upon. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, plus her brother's a bit of a douche, let's be honest. Yeah, well, that's the thing. <laughs> right? I mean, that, that, that's really, yeah. He looks so smug the whole time, doesn't he? And there's a, there's a clip that somebody pointed out where he starts laughing yeah. in court at something and it just it does it just something ain't well, he, right there just definitely he knows more than he's he, letting on he, he was loving it there's a lot of panto villains there in is. this from that it's just incredible the amount of people that you can you know you you almost want to reach into the screen and yeah. punch from the the you know len kaczynski yeah. brenda dassey's first oh. lawyer that whole thing with the, it just I don't think I've ever been quite so angry yeah. watching something. The way that they handled that kid's I mean, offence was just... I, I, I must shocking. admit, I've, I've, phoned his, I've phoned his office and sent emails and shit. Like, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not... Like, I'm not... I'm, I'm being, like, angry, like, lynch mob stuff. But I've been... I must admit, I have been tweeting and writing complaints online about everyone... Every, everyone there, like, what's his, I mean, him specifically, his law firm, he's a partner in it, but they've taken his profile off the site now. But I was doing Facebook reviews, and then there's the, uh, there's the current, um, there's the mayor of, of, of the county who keeps posting stuff, like, he posts, like, a picture of his mum on, 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 on her birthday, going, mum loves her birthday present, and I'm like, yeah, I wonder what Stephen Avery got for his mum for his fucking birthday, you slut. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, that, was, that, that was actually the government. The government. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> I, I, just keep, I just can't resist it and part of it is for 
you know, comedy value. But also part of it is I felt like, well, I always had a theory when I, when I worked in retail uh, for stationers in England called W.H. Smith, when a, when a customer shouted at me, at first I used to get hurt by it. And I used to think, you know what? You're right to shout at me because if you told me, oh, I hate the fact you've moved to the sandwiches over there, I would go, oh, if somebody if you just told me that, I'd go, yeah, whatever. But you shout it at me, well, guess what? I'll go upstairs and tell the boss, and then he might tell the boss, right? It gets the message. So while I'm not, this isn't a kind of a, 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 the most uh, logical defense of abusing customer sales assistants or indeed uh, people that are just fielding calls and so forth, these things do have a, have a reaction, <laughs> a knock-on effect. And you'd like to think that someone in Manitoba County at some point is going to do something because they're going to get sick of this non-stop abuse from dicks like me. Yeah. Can we um, can we touch upon it's it's Andrew Colborne, isn't it? The the, the guy who gets caught out yeah. lying about yeah. the car. He already knows what make yeah. of car it yeah. is. Two days before they yeah. found it. I mean, I mean that guy. You know, it's, it, it's that thing. You, know, you kind of you'd like to think that they that they didn't go out and murder someone just to frame over it. But that guy, I've. I've never seen anyone more guilty looking or in guilty acting or caught <laughs> yeah. out more times. And then that guy, I read that he got promoted. He's like the head now. He's still there. He's like the head of the, he's like the, head of the sheriff's department or something. Like, it just, it, it beggars belief. That whole thing with the, you know, I've seen a, a theory where they, they reckon that the, the brother and his friend found the car, then alerted Colborn. Mm who's then phones it in while he's looking at it. Then they set it up and arrange for the, the woman who does find it, but they, they kind of tell her where to go because that site yeah. is She found huge. it like 10 minutes and she was the only person with a camera, right? Yeah, um, exactly. I think the unfortunate thing is the, the, the reality is that with all these conspiracies, the, the unfortunate reality, I think, will be that it's all of those conspiracies combined. It's like, you know, Avery's family did it. Teresa's brother and ex-boyfriend found out. They moved the car. The cops then did this. Do you know what I mean? Like, I just think they were all... It's probably like a weird mishmash of all the theories together. It seems to be. <laughs> um, it, 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 it's weird. I mean, the, the amazing knock-on effect of this, this film is that, you know, for me, one of my favourite documentaries of all time was Dear Zachary, which I first saw oh. four years ago, and it just fucking... Oh. I have the bruises from the sucker punch I felt when I watched that. And when I saw it, I'd be told a hundred people to watch it. And I don't think any of them did. And the odd thing that's happened since Making a Murderer is, is that everyone I've told who watched Making a Murderer has now watched it. So is, do you think, Josh, that like Making a Murderer is going to open the doors for not only more people to explore more interesting documentaries, but also make it easier for filmmakers like yourself uh, to get funding for projects as kind of extreme as this. I, I like that idea, that second idea, quite a bit. Uh, the first, I mean, yeah, this is something we always argue about in the documentary community is, um, and, and the first let me say, I think Making a Murder is an incredible piece of, of filmmaking, so, so that's lucky. But yeah. oftentimes when we have a mainstream documentary, it's usually lesser than it's like a Bean Elmo or something. Right. And so there's all these arguments within the documentary community. Is it good that this documentary about Elmo is the biggest documentary of the year or the Justin Bieber documentary is the biggest documentary of the year or Jackass, whatever 3d is the biggest documentary of the year right. is that opening doors are those gateway drugs mm. for people to be like, Oh, I actually do like documentary. I'm going to check out some others. And I, and that's, <laughs> I'm not sure about that, but I think the nice thing is that making a murder is well done. I think that helps. And I also think 
it is something to do with the streaming idea because like you say, no one's going to go sit in an art house theater for 10 hours and watch making a murder. No one's going to go in the old days to blockbuster or the, you know, the video store and rent, you know, 10 different DVDs of making a murder. But when you can do it from the comfort of your computer or your living room and or your phone and watch these 10 episodes in a row, it, that binging that we've you know started doing in our culture is, um, I think a big contributor to this as well. And so hopefully people will start following this Netflix model, um, Amazon, Hulu, and be creating original content like this more often. Yeah. Given the vast success of making a murder, you would like to think now that if a documentary filmmaker, well, I mean, I mean, I live in a, a, a I, I left London, England two years ago and moved to a small town in St. John uh, in New Brunswick on, in Atlantic Canada. And we recently had a, uh, we had a trial very, very recently that ended very bizarre case where, um, one of the most powerful families in the province, they own Moosehead Breweries, which sells beer all over America and Canada. The, the, uh, basically, the, the, the son killed his father, or uh, allegedly, I should say. Um, and uh, the trial ended, he was found guilty, and yet there is like next to no evidence mm. he did it. it. Very similar, it was weird, because it was all unfolding over Christmas, so similar time as I was watching Making a Murderer, you know, and he, he's supposed to have, you know, stabbed him 50 times, and 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 yet there was, you know, the tiniest, tiniest trace of, of what could be blood on his jacket. No real evidence whatsoever. So much reasonable doubt, but found guilty. And anyway, my, my, my point being that while this thing was unfolding, I kept thinking, my goodness, this would be... Uh, uh, and the cast of characters you know, involved in this, yeah. this thing to happen in this tiny city with zero crime, where you never... No one ever gets murdered here, and then suddenly it's the most powerful man in the city. And and it's allegedly, possibly, maybe not though, his son. I, I, I guess what I'm, what I'm getting at is that you know, a it would have been uh, an incredible, and still possibly would be as as this story unfolds more, uh, as he appeals, but a filmmaker's dream. But you would like to think now that if someone went to Hulu or Amazon or Netflix and said, "There's this thing we want funding," do you think that they're more likely to fund something? Oh yeah, Netflix for sure. And I think the the idea that kind of came to me as we were talking is I think. Um, the biggest change that we're going to see from, from a documentary filmmaker's point of view is the support for the stories we're already trying to tell. I'm, I'm working on a film right now called Plan 241. It has to do with a criminal case um, in Alaska that turned into a federal court case. And it's very difficult to get access. That's the biggest challenge. You know, um, yeah, money is always a challenge for an independent filmmaker. But even if you get a great grant from a organization that is – uh, a well-respected documentary organization, you still don't have that corporate backing, shall we say. So if I was coming in from CNN films, I might be granted access to a prison or to, you know, uh, to do interviews or to FBI agents that I'm not going to get as an independent filmmaker. And those have been huge obstacles for independent filmmakers for a long time, um, getting cooperation from the police, getting cooperation from Gosh, yeah. um, different organizations. And so, yeah, I think maybe having just the backing now of Net of a Netflix, um, yeah. I bet a lot of these companies now are going to um, want to try to replicate the success that Netflix has had. Yeah. And that might have a huge impact on the films that are being made simply because uh, they'll be able to tell the stories better and deliver them to a larger audience. It, it, it could have the reverse effect, though, in that given what's happened to Manitoba County, if you were to say yeah. – 
here covering what's happening here and you said i'm shooting this for netflix everyone would go get the fuck out yeah <laughs> their, their assholes all squeeze up really tightly yeah. when you say like the words netflix now i mean people are gonna shit themselves i mean i kind of thought after i saw paradise lost and that they were in the courtroom and had all that courtroom footage I, my first thought was this is this will never happen again no one's ever going to be allowed to do this again because you know every single person in 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 west memphis involved in the legal system looks like a complete arsehole and have been made to look that way and of course Paradisos wasn't even on the on a on a modicum of the scale of making a murderer um yeah do you think that's a possibility that people are going to suddenly actually want to give less access because they've seen what can happen absolutely that's definitely a possible back uh fallout that is unintentional that that could be bad but i don't know the thing is is you're always dealing with different people different places and and i don't know there's something you know again i'm sorry to keep going back to this but when we did clean flicks there are some people who just like the limelight who just like to be on camera even if it's not in their best interest when you guys i don't know if you've seen the jinx yet yeah the jinx is a great example of someone who should not be putting themselves on camera and it's well, it's no only way. to their detriment to be on camera, but they can't help themselves. Yeah, well, it was it's, it's same same with your with with the essentially who, who essentially turns out to argue be the villain of your film. In that you know his downfall, as is always the case with these people, is that he likes being the public eye. Both and that and I mean that both in terms of wanting to be so uh, vocal in your film, but also wanting to be so vocal with the media. Yes, uh, exactly. Um, which probably leads us leads us quite um, perfectly into clean flicks. Hello listeners, this is Owen Hughes here, producer of Field and Mullinger's Underground Nights, where I like to leave in all the sex, swearing and the disturbingly high volume of violence. Underground Nights is part of the Failed Media Network of Podcasts, alongside the slightly shambolic weekly Failed Critics Film Podcast. You can find both shows by searching for the Failed Critics Podcast on iTunes, where you can leave a review of the show, which is incredibly helpful for spreading the word. Alternatively, you could download the show and find out more about your hosts, Paul Field and James Mullinger, on our website, failedcritics.com. Back to Underground Nights. I'll say this, one of the wonderful things about, again, we've said this about making murder, opening people's eyes to things. You know, Paul said to me, you know, that you were coming on this and that I should check out Clean Flicks. Now, the odd thing, again, I'm someone that, I mean, one of the unfortunate facts is that documentary films, until they're nominated for an Oscar, no one, uh, they don't get the coverage that they deserve everywhere. But what's so weird is that this is like something that I'm so fascinated with and I'm fascinated by the industry, fascinated about the concept of piracy, but also because as a child, my dad would create clean flicks movies for me. No way. But with no (laughs) sense of skill, he would be, this is absolutely true, and I use the perfect example, he would be recording Repo Man off the TV for me and he would just use the pause button. Like, so quite often, if a woman started taking off her top, but then it was going to cut scenes. He, he might pause it. And then, of course, it would be nothing. So he'd restart it. <laughs> and, then, and then some cases, if, if it kicked off suddenly, he'd stop it, rewind the tape a bit. So, I mean, the first time I saw Repo Man, it was 23 minutes long. <laughs> and, 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 this was, and, and the reason he did this was because I was a, a, an insane, you know, seven, eight-year-old who was into 
wanting to see Goodfellas and Repo Man. I was never, I wasn't into kids' cartoons. I mean, I mean, so in some ways, it was they liked the fact that I wanted to watch Out of Africa and that my first cat was called Meryl Streep. But also, uh, they so they were trying to kind of celebrate his love of movies. But anyway, so that was the reason why he was doing these clean flicks edits. But what I couldn't understand watching these these people that you were interviewing was that if you're so moral, why do you want to see Goodfellas? Yeah. Like, there was like, a big disconnect there for sure. And I think I think for me the answer is they want to feel like they're part of the cultural zeitgeist right. and not be alienated from kind of you know, just like with making a murder, everybody's talking about it. You want to watch it. Yeah. But if there's a three minute, you know, nude scene, they're not going to. And so to give them the opportunity to take part in it um, and, and that makes deal. sense with a lot of films. Like, you, there's a lot of films out there where, for the most part, it's fairly clean, and there's twelve fucks, and so take out the fucks, or there's one sex scene, and you yeah. take out the sex scene. But but uh, or a movie like The Accused, say, where uh, there's one a, a horribly violent rape scene, but then the rest of the film isn't like that. So you can maybe trim down. The, but the weird thing with a film like Goodfellas, or particularly the person I'm talking about in the film that said, you know, I, I, I did a gangster a thon of Godfather and Goodfellas. Now this person loves gangsters, but just hates <laughs> swearing. Like, <laughs> yeah. Josh, just very quickly, because now your film's kind of freely available. Uh, people can rent it in the UK now for a, for a few bucks, which wasn't the case for, for quite a while. Um, just give us a kind of an overview and explain the whole concept behind the, the Mormon church and who, what they can and can't see. Yeah. So there was uh, in the Mormon church, the leaders, they call the prophet and um, they take the, the words that he says over the pulpit as basically scripture. And um, in the eighties, there was a guy named Ezra Taft Benson that was the leader of the church and it's like the Pope, basically. And he said, hey, uh, and he was, the funny thing is he was talking only to the young men at the time. But he said, don't watch R-rated movies. And that idea became a blanket belief, cultural belief of a lot of Mormons, almost the entire American LDS church. Obviously, that's different overseas because the R rating doesn't exist in that same form. And so smartly, those people had to make choices for themselves based on the content rather than just basing it off of what the MPAA decides. But basically what you have is the entire Mormon church, not watching R rated movies. And so when Titanic comes around, there's this massive interest in seeing Titanic, which itself I believe was only PG 13, but there's this big nude scene in the film, of course, with cable. You wouldn't know this Paul, have you not seen Titanic, but <laughs> this massive nude scene where she's, you know, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio draws her like one of his French girls and uh, and she takes her top off. That's it. And basically all these Mormons, you know, tweens wanted to watch the film. And so Clean Flicks served this massive audience by taking those VHS tapes, taking out some scissors, finding the moment that this takes place in and physically cutting the VHS tape with some scissors and taping it together with some scotch tape. And they create a new business is born, basically. And it's not totally new. I mean, in the United States, they've been editing films for television and for airlines for a long time. But the idea that you could rent this and take it home with you was or buy it even and take it home with you was a totally new idea with Clean Flicks. And of course, when it became DVD, they went digital and they were using digital editing software to clean up these movies. And, and what they were taking out was uh, nudity, sex extreme violence and swearing. And so um, they would go through and clean out every swear word, clean out the most gruesome bits of violence, 
and they were they did go a lot easier on the violence of course because it's america and we only care about nudity not not violence um and and clean out some of the sex and then resell these um without the permission of the studios without the permission of the copyright holders without the permission of the filmmakers and so when the word got back to the directors guild of america this huge lawsuit ensued where you have huge names in the entertainment industry like martin scorsese robert redford uh, James Cameron, all of these guys suing this small little mom and pop store in Utah. Um, and of course, as publicity tends to do, it only made business stronger and business was booming until the you know court order actually finally came through, which shut down clean flicks. Our film, that kind of takes you through like the 20 minute mark when some of these rogue retailers decide they're going to start doing it themselves since clean flicks corporate is no longer around. And that's kind of what the rest of our movie is about. And the important, important point to make, I'm really sorry to interrupt just for people listening, is that, is that Clean Fix and the original uh, gestation of it, they, they weren't copying the movies and then essentially bootlegging them. They're, they're, they were quite strict about the fact, or religious <laughs> about the fact, <laughs> that, that if they bought 10 copies, that they rented 10 copies of their thing. So they weren't, in theory, uh, stealing. Yeah, they were calling it, you know, the one-to-one ratio, and that's how they justified their editing of the film. They were essentially selling you a backup copy. It was the way their thinking worked. So you're buying the original, and we're going to give you this edited backup copy, and that just happens to be the one you watch. Uh, I, I didn't feel that any of the filmmakers in the film uh, properly, uh, probably argued this other than the obvious thing that they haven't okayed it. But given they, their main uh, vociferous argument was that, of course, their work is being uh, bastardized without their permission. Where did they all stand on the TV edits, the airline edits, all that kind of stuff, which were all pretty awfully done as well? It wasn't like it, the airline edit of traffic didn't seem to be Soderbergh approved. It, it was bloody yeah. awful the way that the. So why was it basically about money? Because they if were... you want, yeah, if you want to be cynical, the truth is, is that it is about money. It's part of their contracts. They know going in that they're going to have to do it whether they like to or not. In some cases, the bigger name directors have a hand in those airplane edits, but that's not common. That's that's a rarity. That's a Steven Spielberg kind of thing. So right. So 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 why didn't they, you know, market those essentially for? Because it wasn't like those things were going to be big. No one wanted that stuff in London or probably New York or LA. Like, like given it's Utah, why did you know? Given they, they're making those copies for airlines, for TV, why not uh, just distribute it in Utah and keep it quiet? So the main thing that we heard, um, and this was just kind of an off-the-record comment. No one would really go on camera and say this, but they basically they wanted control of the product. They wanted to know you know, like if they put an unrated version out there, it's the, they're in control of that. And they didn't want to have other copies floating around out there. Why they can't have an, un, you know, uh, edited version along with the unrated version. I'm not sure. We never got a clear answer to that. Yeah. It is interesting because, um, they could do that and they could control it and they could have control of the edit. But I guess, I guess it's possibly it's because it's a slippery slope. And also it's the fact that it could, I guess, one of the obvious answers is it would be seen to be backing down, which no one ever wants to be That's seen exactly. to do. Well, they, I think they undervalued the market, honestly. Right. I think they didn't realize how many people wanted it. Yeah, I couldn't, and, I couldn't believe it, seeing had the number of people going through those video stores. I didn't yeah. even think how many people went to video stores full stop, let yeah. alone... 
Well, they were the most popular stores around here in these parts, but also as the business started to expand, I mean, it was, it was popular in the South. It was popular within the prison system. Um, there was a huge demand for this product actually. And, like the opposite. I used to put together, I still have videotapes of just dirty bits. Right? So, <laughs> right? so I, have, I have a tape upstairs in my, in my, in my office right now. So my mum was between the percent on the spine. It just says a compilation. And what it is, 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 is it's 15, 16 minutes of Basic Instinct, the important bits, and it's a few minutes of Hollywood Madam, and it's a few minutes of the Big Easy, uh, Bull Durham, uh, White Palace, right? It, it's just, so I basically, all the bits they were trimming out, I was busy just putting on to one. Yeah, of course. Yeah, anyway. Somebody's so. got to save those. <laughs> I need to ask you, Josh, what, what is your connection with the kind of LDS? And how, how did you kind uh, of... My, so my co-director and I were both raised in the church and neither of us are practicing at this point so ah, yeah, okay. it was um we both lived here and and that was the thing that you know that really made me believe i wanted to direct this film um you know i had just seen have you guys seen the mpaa documentary i don't know if that got outside the united states but yeah, it's herbie dick's film this film is not yet rated and it yeah, got released in it. england actually yeah so I, I had just seen that film and a friend of mine had been telling me about the whole clean flick story. And it's not a place. It's a place I'd never been to before, you know, but they, I'd heard of it obviously, but it wasn't, you know, I wasn't a customer there or anything. Yeah. And they were saying, Hey, this big clean flicks lawsuit is happening. This would be a great story. We should cover it. And I said, I don't know if there's anything there. I don't know how interesting that is to an outside audience outside of Mormon culture. And I'm not interested in making a film for Mormon culture. Um, and then I went and saw this film was not rated, and I thought, okay, we can definitely do a film about that if they made a movie about this. And so that was kind of my inspiration <laughs> point um, in terms of leaping into it. And yeah, I mean, I think church gets painted to outsiders as more devious and conservative than um, than it actually is. Well, you turn me on to quite a few. I've watched since yeah. this. I've gone on and watched quite a few sort of LDS um, docs. Some of them you've pointed me towards. I think there was the one with the guys at the New York yeah, Dolls. that's a great film. That was awesome. The one where the, the kids try and almost like escape the uh, church. Sons that of Perdition. There we go. Brilliant. And then this last week I watched Prophets oh, Pray. Now, now, Sons that of Perdition was... and Prophets Oof. Pray are both about like crazy offshoot groups that aren't part of like mainstream culture. So I don't know if that's clear from seeing those films. Probably not here. Yeah, but if you can imagine, um, they're like the difference between, um, the people living in the village and then the people living in the woods by themselves. Like that's kind of, you know what I mean? Like they're, they're severe offshoot of what everyone else in town is doing. They're not, um, that's not representative of the main Mormon culture, but it is definitely an offshoot. It just happened to be an offshoot from a hundred years ago. And we live in a place where there's a lot of deserts and they can go start their own communities, you know? So yeah, I, I think because of stuff like prophets, pride and sons of perdition, and maybe because of Clean Flicks, I do think that there's maybe an uh, unfair um, a picture of what Mormons are like. Because I think you do see maybe from the people going on the store, they're pretty average people, pretty regular types of people, um, just p- very prudish people, um, but p- pretty normal. And they're, and they're very different from uh, the extremists 
that you see in a lot of the coverage on the Mormon church. But I mean, that's what I thought was so good about the the, the film, which, you know, and again, I can't emphasize enough to everyone listening in England, Canada, everyone else, everywhere else to go onto Vimeo and, and, and rent Clean Flicks because it is a fantastic documentary. And if you liked Making Moto, you will love this because it has all of the same beats and paces and, and fascination that I found with that. Um, but what I thought you did so well in it is that I did not feel strongly on either side. I understood both sides' arguments. So, That's good. Uh, yeah, I, and I also, again, I mean, I have not much experience of uh, Mormonism other, other than, and again, certainly do not have anything of a negative um, connotation in my mind before and my wife does work with, with some Mormons and, and again, only, uh, only good things. And similarly, knowing nothing and then watching this, they all just seemed like all the people visiting the store, even though I couldn't necessarily understand the mindset of the person that desperately wants to see Goodfellas. For the most part, <laughs> what I thought was these just seem like good people. Like they're not, you know, like uh, they're not they're not bad people. They're just right. uh, people that don't like swearing and and, and sex. And actually, you know, um, that's not you know who do who do I want as a neighbour? That person or yeah. the person that just wants to watch Hostel fifteen times a day? You know, I'll pick I'll pick uh, I'll pick them any day. So yeah, I, I, so I thought that. Um, and especially given that you got access to these amazing, you know, uh, superstar Hollywood directors, you didn't steer the film in their favor. It was very balanced, which you could have, which a lot of people, I think, would have been tempted to do to be like. Yeah. And we've been accused of being biased in both directions and both right. sides of the equation have been mad at us as right. well. So um, that, to me, that's a good sign. Yeah. Because we did try our best to be as unbiased as possible, but still, I think it is. Um, a culture that a lot of people don't have access to. And to me, that's the most exciting thing a documentary can do is take you into a part of the world that you normally wouldn't get to see and kind of shining a light on it. So that's what we wanted to do and, and let people kind of see what this culture is all about. And, um, and, you know, or at least this part with regard to media, I should say. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, I agree. I think Mormons are people whose intentions are, good for the most part i think generally speaking i think all the mormons that i know are people who are trying to be good citizens be good people i will say lately since we made clean flicks it's gotten a lot more extreme in the united states um there's been a lot of stuff that i personally can't agree with which is why i've distanced myself from the church more recently which has been a lot of lgbt issues and things like that so um, it's interesting, and, and, and we touched upon, and we'll probably come back to, to Dear Zachary, but, uh, and of course one of the amazing things about Dear Zachary is this kind of sucker punch of a moment kind of uh, ha- ha- halfway through the film. Um, but I wanted to ask you, as a, as a documentary filmmaker, like the point at which, you know, and I won't spoil it, the twist. Uh, I know where you're yeah. going to go with this. is Daniel Dean Thompson, Sorry, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, so like, yeah. And, and, and I had read, I annoyingly had read, uh, that there's a that there's a twist, and it's always I don't know why people do this. I don't know why uh, critics and so forth always need to say, "Oh, there's an amazing like that new book, Girl on a Train." Oh, there's a big curtain. It's like with, if you if you read Gone Girl for the first time, and everyone said, "Just wait till the big reveal." It's not yeah. so big when. So I don't want to spoil it that way. And um, but I, when I have, people tell you there's a twist, then you're anticipating a twist the whole time, basically. Exactly, that's exactly it. I guess, and and, and so we don't go into it. My question for you is: even though it's a it's it's a dark happening, is there a moment as like for example, I imagine with the filmmakers of Dizak and the filmmakers of Making a Murder, when these things happen, 
is there a brief moment of, oh my God, we've got our ending? Like, not that you're high-fiving a sinister thing happening, but is there a moment of, fuck yeah. I mean, it was more than we could have ever imagined. We were following the story of, at that point, it was Flicks Club. And we were just waiting for it to end. And I imagine the making of murder people must have felt very similar, although they're dealing with much bigger stuff than we were. But you're following this for years. And you're just like, please, like, police, show up at some point and shut this down. Like, why is this still open? And we were calling the DGA and being like, you know this is happening, right? Are you taking any action? Like, what? Like, we want to wrap this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody thought that that was going to be the ending. We certainly didn't. We did know that he was lying to us about who he was the whole time. And yeah. there are very subtle clues throughout the film yeah. that the average person, unless you're Mormon, you probably wouldn't pick up on um, because they Mormons don't typically drink coffee. They don't drink alcohol. Uh, they're against pornography. And so if you're paying attention in Daniel's office, there's a stack of Playboys or there's a box of wine or he's drinking he's drinking a Starbucks coffee, which right. seems normal in every other place in the world, but in Utah is a rarity to see, right. especially within a clean flex store. Yeah. And so um, we knew he wasn't who he was kind of claiming to be. And yeah, we had met his ex-girlfriend who kind of pops up in the film. And even more, we really went easy on Daniel um, compared to the what we could have put in the film. Yeah, which is the main reason there hasn't been a backlash by him because he knows what we could have done to him and chose not to. And the reason we didn't was it was it didn't seem related to the story we were trying to tell. It was it was getting deeper and deeper to his personal life. I would say the ex-girlfriend moment is the one time I I always wrestle with should we have put kept this in the film or not? Because it does seem to go out. It's to me, it's the one piece that goes outside of the story that we're telling I mean, it's relevant, but it's also, I guess, it is hearsay, you know, which, as yeah. everything is. I mean, everything, every, every opinion is hearsay, but, um, but yeah, but it's not, I guess, yeah, I, I see your point, it's not back to, but when you say other things, you kind of mean other interviews or other things he accidentally said. Other actions that we were told he took part in that didn't seem like it was part of this specific story. Right, yeah. right. So, mm. guys, three dollars on yeah. Vimeo. And you can rent it from yeah. the UK. Everyone's going to, hopefully, all of our listeners who haven't seen this, uh, are going to going to get involved. So. Josh, we're going to ask you about your sort of three favourite documentaries in a moment. But we've actually had some replies from listeners <laughs> on this, asking them their favourite documentaries. Um, Andrew Brooker's come in with the the act of killing and Room Two Three Seven. Yeah, killing is incredible. Um, have you guys seen that? Yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. We were talking about it. I, I actually, I haven't, and it's been on my list for a long time. But I just, it, it's weird when you know you just can't stomach the rage that you know you're going to feel. Like I kind of yeah. know what it's about. And um, haven't yet, but now now I'm kind of in that mindset. I will be watching it. <laughs> now, now that you're in the making the murder mindset, watch these three movies back to back. Watch Enemies of the People, yeah. um, The Act of Killing, and The Look of Silence. And that will obliterate you. You'll feel emotionally <laughs> spent, but it will be worth it. Um, um, yeah, we've got... Sorry, I've got, I'm going to crackle because we're going to run out of time, guys. I've got Rick Burin here who's come in with Hoop Dreams, um, The Sorrow and the Pity, and pretty much anything by Errol Morris. Um, Catherine's come in with the Queen of Versailles, which I adore yeah. that film. So much fun. And then Owen, who's our producer, <laughs> has gone with Hoop Dreams, Welcome to Leith, Grizzly Man, Blackfish, Haxon, Room 237 and The Aristocrats. Mm. Um, and I've seen things like Catfish and um, 
the imposter, both of which I enjoyed massively and, and have, you know, uh, the utmost respect for. But it's funny how your standards become very high after a film like Dear Zachary. See, I, I I go the way of the imposter over Dear Zachary personally, but I I can understand the impact of Dear Zachary is so intense. Yeah. And I heard you talking about how you were a new father when you saw it. And yeah. I was the same way. I had a, a little one-year-old toddling around in front of the television, between my eyeline, like in my eyeline in front of the television, <laughs> my little one-year-old was toddling around while we, my wife and I were watching it. We were just sobbing our eyes out because... Same. I just, I just wept and wept and wept. And then every time I thought about it for the, for the few weeks after, I cried. I mean, it, it, and it was weird. I think, I, funny enough, I think my son was literally a year old as well. How old is your son now? He's five. My son's five. That's so weird. We must have literally seen it around the same time, which is weird because that isn't when it came out, of course. Uh, yeah, it came out two years early, two or three years earlier than that. Yeah. But... No, I was going to say, um, Josh, do you want to hit us up with your, your kind of? Yeah, it has to be your top three, but three of your your favorite um, documentaries that some of our listeners. Yeah, can I, check I out. came up with some other. If you like making a murder, some other things you should watch now. Dear Zachary is definitely one to check out. I hadn't thought of that. Um, the Imposter is one that I would highly recommend checking out. Capturing the Freedmans. But but if you really want something just like Making a Murder, not just like, but as close as you can get to it, the two series I would recommend are The Staircase, which is a Sundance Channel documentary, and The Jinx, which is an HBO documentary series. Each of those is about eight episodes long, I believe. Can I just I tell you now, The Staircase in the UK... It is really the only way to get it is to get a copy from Amazon France. There is no UK DVD or anything. Mm. So I don't, I, I've not seen it streaming. I mean, maybe I'm. You really need to watch I'm it. Wrong. But I had to. <laughs> I had to buy the box. They're set. making a sequel right now, so it, it would behoove you to uh, maybe when the sequel comes out, it, the original will be more accessible. Um, but oh, that's definitely one to watch. I mean, this is why I was making this point earlier. You know, that I've been Googling relentlessly uh, on Making Murder. I've Googled the words best documentaries ever a million times, which is how I obviously heard about the jinx and serial through the articles on Making a Murderer. And actually, I found about, about Dear Zachary through a, a Louis Theroux list of his favorites. But again, I've never heard of The Staircase. And, and you mention it, and I Google it now, and suddenly, yeah, it's like this, uh, by all accounts, incredible, mind-blowing but but why haven't I heard about it? You know, it's not. Saying? Yeah, it, it, it's, the production values are very low. Which I would also say, at the beginning of making a murderer, they're very low too. Part of that is just the technology that was available at the time. And the staircase starts out a little bit more like those uh, kind of schlocky television pieces we were talking about earlier as well. But I, I, the story itself is worth seeing. It, it's very very interesting. Um, uh, the Jinx is a new film that looks great and. Yeah. Um, that may be more accessible to people. And of course, you guys mentioned the Paradise Lost films. I would throw in there West of Memphis with those. Definitely West, worth checking out. West of Memphis. So, so I've obviously seen all the Paradise Lost films, then saw West of Memphis. Did you think West of Memphis added anything? Like, what, what do you think that that brought? <sighs> it's a good question. I, I, you know, it's been a while since I've seen it, but I, I remember when I saw it, I saw it at Sundance thinking it, it it's it's not the same tone because you bring in all these celebrities and who cares what Eddie Vedder thinks about all this. Yeah. But, um, but I did think it added something and I thought the money, at least it was put toward the investigation that freed these guys was worthwhile. So, yeah. um, true. And also I guess it told the seven hour story in, uh, two and a half hours. So suddenly it's more yeah. accessible for people coming new to it. Do you, what do you feel about the fact that they did quite heavily criticize 
Paradise Lost 2 for its finger pointing. Um, like, did they need to um, stick the knife in quite so? I Well, I think a lot of that was because of, there was such a rivalry between the filmmakers at the point that that was made. And it's a, it's a shame, but... You know, when you're a collector of something, you just have to have all of them. To me, that's what West of Memphis is. It's like you got to finish out the set. Yeah. You got to have the whole tale. Um, yeah. So. And Devil's Knot. I don't know if you guys have seen Devil's Knot, but it's- no, I just I, I almost couldn't watch it because it just sounds it, well. By all accounts, is is terrible. But it, yeah, it, it's the fictional Reese Witherspoon. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Like, Awful. But yeah. but again, like I just had to see it. You know, it was just one of those things, but because it's kind of part of the the fabric of that story. Um I like fun documentaries as well though. Not all they don't all have to be dead serious. And um one that I really liked is a Canadian documentary called Beauty Day. Have you guys seen that? Yeah, because obviously I, I'm a long-standing film okay. junk listener, and uh, I listened to Jay Chill for many, 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 many. Okay, hours. great. Yeah, Jay and I did a documentary podcast together a few years ago uh, called the Documentary Blog Podcast for his his blog, um, and it only went like ten episodes. But yeah, I'm a big fan of Jay's. I I listened oh, to that great. as well. Awesome. Yeah. Can, can I ask Josh what 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 you particularly liked about the Imposter? Because again, I loved it, but I'm I'm curious. Like, I love the Imposter. Yeah. I love it. Okay, so um, so the Thin Blue Line is a classic in the genre. Yeah. And I think the reason it's the classic in the genre is it was the first film to do these re- reenactments, but they're not like the cheesy TV reenactments. The way they were doing the reenactments, where they were from a subjective point of view, so they were showing you the different. They were not trying to show you this was a camera that was there and this is what, what you would have seen had you been there. No, it's showing you, this is what this person is telling you and you can um, look at it for clues as to whether or not they're telling the truth. And the imposter picking, taking a cue from the thin blue line does it better than any film I've ever seen where it's giving you all of these subjective reenactments of the events. And it's up to you to kind of try to piece those subjective stories together and try to find the truth for yourself i love that i absolutely love it. it's one of those things like I, I i guess for the whole film i i i like them wanted him to be i wanted him to be the son <laughs> yeah you know well the weird thing about the imposter is there's there is a um a fictionalized version really they've made yeah they've made a film and when you watch it the the documentary is way more batshit crazy than the, than the <laughs> dramatized because in a film nobody would believe right. what right. really went on. Which is the huge, <laughs> which is which is why documentaries are so uh, incredible. In the in the, I mean, mo- I mean, making a murderer, you couldn't make a film about something so ridiculous. Guy gets out of jail, then you know that would be like the plot of like the worst B movie ever, and yeah. yet it happened. Yeah, absolutely. Indeed, um, they, they say truth is. I mean, people always told us with that with Clean Flicks too. It's um, you couldn't you couldn't write this story, or people would call you a hack. You know, like right. it's ridiculous. <laughs> uh, I also quite like the uh, video game documentary, The King of Kong. I don't oh, yeah. know if yeah. you've seen that. Oh, do you know what? I've got my top ten in front of me, and you've you've nearly name checked. All right, all let's, of hear them so, let's hear it. So far, Josh, <laughs> I've got Capturing the Freedmans, uh, American Movie, oh. Winnie Baker. Sorry, Man. American Movie. Absolutely, I totally forgot. That. That's incredible. Yeah. Have you seen that? You yeah, need to see that, James. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 second week running, it's come up. Sorry, the yeah. second show running. Um, Winnebago Man. I can take it or leave it. Jack fucking <laughs> Rebney. Um, the Queen of Versailles. No, you, you, I just, I just thought it was like chewing on your fist watching the just. They were just so vulgar. That family it was just unbelievable. 
the thing is, I mean, I agree, but then I could watch the Kardashians, like, like you know, put a, put a, put cameras in front of a group of total cunts. <laughs> 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 and, and and I mean, and I did really, I did like it. For me, though, what I'd read about how it was a searing indictment on, you know, um, uh, the financial crisis, blah, 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 I didn't really get that. I just saw a bunch of cunts. That's what it should have been Correct. called. I thank God. Grizzly Man. Oh, yeah. Beautiful. I mean, poor Timothy Treadwell, you know, when he, when, who believed that bears <laughs> trusted him. I love anything Herzog does. I think he's a genius. Yeah. Um, you've mentioned the Thin Blue Line, uh, then the King of Kong. Um, then my favourite Earl Morris is actually Tablet. I love Tablet. That's another great Mormon story, actually. It's just so batshit yeah. crazy. You, again, you could yep. not make this up. And the fact that you've got all the kind of sleazy UK tabloid journalists <laughs> on it as well is just brilliant. It's a perfect marriage. Uh, and then it gets serious. Yeah, I've got um, the English surgeon. Oh, incredible. Oh, that's a proper tearjerker, that is. That guy, Henry Marsh, is, you know, that guy deserves a pro, you know, a medal. <laughs> and then my number one's the Paradise Lost trilogy. Yeah. So, yeah, we're singing from the same sheet, Josh. The, the only one, and I'm, I'm very excited to see Josh's uh, documentaries done with all of those comedians. Um, because probably, like, outside of what we've, all the ones we've talked about, and it's obviously clear from uh, what I've talked about, which are my favourites in terms of, Obviously, uh, Paradise Lost, and of course, yeah, now Clean Flicks would indeed be on my list. Um, but the, 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 the documentary that's changed my life the most, and I think you speak to any comedian, the film that they uh, watch the most and talk about the most is the film Comedian, about Jerry Seinfeld's <laughs> return to yeah. stand which is just, you know, again, I mean, the production values aren't, uh, you know, uh, big screen made, but of course that's the reality of, you know, it, behind the scenes gritty um, the realness of stand-up. And I think, you know, for me, watching the movie Comedian, seeing the struggle of Orny Adams alongside uh, Jerry Seinfeld, it's almost certainly the film that gave me the, the, the impetus to, to, to start doing stand-up. Um, really? You yeah. wanted to be Orny? Yeah, well, yeah well, and so, I mean, I, I have loads of tales off, right, from this. I mean, A, my love of it led to me, or my... my Seeing, like, Seinfeld's story when he talks about how, you know, um, Glenn Miller and his band broke down in the middle of the woods and they're carrying Beautiful. and they're broken and they're tired and they're ripped and they're torn and they come up to this house and there's a beautiful, warm and uh, scene and a family eating and the, the drummer turns to Glenn and says, how do people live like this? Like, like to me, that, that profound statement, it, it, it created kind of, or, or watching the process of both these comedians created my love of stand-up and it's something that I've been able to tell Seinfeld many times having got to know him through my love of that, through the fact that it was that that got me into stand-up. That was a fact that he liked, and he he was in a TV show that I did in England. I've interviewed him numerous times for GQ. We kind of became yeah. friendly. And then a year ago, uh, two years ago, uh, next month, I my first paid, my first working gig in Canada when I moved here, two days after I moved here, was opening for Orny Adams over seven shows over five months. <laughs> Um, so and, and it's a fascinating thing and I hope he, and again lovely guy who, who gave me this shot etc cetera, etc cetera. the one thing I will say and I hope if he's if he ever listens to this uh, which I don't think he will because it's not about him um, <laughs> um, is that is that you watch a film like that made you know possibly almost 20 years ago now and 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 you would think that that would change a person but the wonderful thing with documentaries is they just capture what's there and the reality is, if you want to know what he's like now, you would just go, what would that person be like in 15, 20 years? And wow. that's it. It, it. it didn't create a kind of uh, moment of humility and big change. 
Um, wow. But but to me, nothing captures the reality of of of, of what I do night after night better than that film you know the, the, another story Seinfeld tells which is again I quote this all the time but it's that thing where now that I've made something of a name for myself where I live in Canada people go oh it must be you know it must be easy now you know now that you know names above the door of the theatre people come they come to see you and 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 Jerry tells that story or, or maybe it was Chris Rock or someone says about the fact that you know everyone loves Jack Nicholson but if you put Jack Nicholson on the stage in a comedy club everyone will clap for a minute but if after a minute they're not laughing, they throw him off. And it's like, and, and, and seeing Seinfeld obviously struggling with that gig. And I interviewed George Shapiro shortly afterwards. And, and Shapiro said, you know, as a manager, he was saying, you know, we shouldn't let them put this scene in the film. You know, you getting heckled by it. was it, 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 funny enough, an English woman saying, is this your first gig? And Seinfeld going, no, that has to go in because I want people to see what this process is. Like why yeah. he, he wants people to respect the craft and the art form. And, um, and he was, he also doesn't like it when people suggest that he has it easy. I saw, yeah, um, yeah. there was that conversation. Have you ever seen it with uh, Rock, Seinfeld, Louis C.K., and Ricky Gervais? Yeah, yeah. I, I just saw that this week. I went down some internet black hole when David Bowie died, and somehow I ended up on, on that <laughs> clip. Yeah. But, but yeah, Seinfeld talks about how you have to win them over every two minutes. Yeah. You basically have two minutes at a time. You're judged. <laughs> As a yeah. comedian, it, it, it's so true. I mean, there's really no grace period, and of course, it actually gets harder the bigger you are because you know. And in England, there's a, a process, uh, a thing that happened where this boom that's happened in stand-up in the UK right now. You've got a, a, an oddly large number of comedians selling out arenas, i.e., fifteen, twenty thousand seats. So while Madonna might do five nights, they're doing ten nights. Like there's an oddly large number, and I don't mean a humongous number, but like twenty. So given in Canada, there's one, Russell Peters. You know, it's odd for a yeah. tiny island like England to have twenty. And, and and the weird thing that happens is you get these comics that, that that work for fifteen years playing the clubs, perfecting their craft. Whatever tiny thing it is, the right TV show, the right bit of exposure that propels them to arena status, they suddenly do an arena show uh, and record a DVD of their first 15 years of material that, of course, has been honed in front of audiences that not only don't know them, but probably hate them when they walk out and they have to win them over. So that fucking 90-minute show, that first big arena tour, first DVD, is solid gold stuff. That's 15 years, night after night, to total strangers. That first show is just uh, uh, having to win over strangers. That is gold. And then they've got, and then suddenly all the money's been thrown at me. You've got a year to come up with a new arena tour and a new DVD. Well, how good do you think that second show is, given right. it's only done in front of people that love them? Like yeah. they might book a tiny little tin pot theater and go, you know, work in progress, you know, tickets, five bucks. Who books the tickets? The fans. So they walk out on stage. The fans are just so it's very hard for them to then actually refine the best. I mean, the best story. Again, I had this story from Seinfeld, which is that when Chris Rock tests new material, he goes out and refuses to perform. He walks out at these clubs in Goth- uh, Gotham Comedy Club in New York and so yeah. forth. And he reads it off a piece of paper and won't make eye contact because he says that if he goes out and does the Chris Rock voice, because of the vocal intonation that they're used to, they might laugh out of just politeness or because they're used to laughing at that point. So he reads these, these jokes in a monotone That's because, yeah, if, if, when, they have been, when one eventually gets a laugh, he knows it's good. Um, anyway, so, I mean, I, I could obviously bang on about this shit all night and I've already done a Love speech. It. But 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 to me, the last two years with comedians and and they uh, really (laughs) relating to all the stuff you're talking about. (laughs) 
What, what can you tell us about that film? I basically I just did two work for hires after Clean Flicks um, because Clean Flicks didn't pay anything. Mm-hmm. And the next two films I made were not movies I would probably choose to make, but they paid great. And I did those, and now I'm back to uh, working on a passion project while those um, are in post-production. But one of those ha- had a lot of comedians in it. It started a comedian named Dave Stone, who's a relative unknown, but he was on a, the big American contest comedy show. Last Comic Standing. Yeah, he was on that this last season. Anyway, we ended up getting to work with uh, Kyle Kinane and Nick Thune and Pete Holmes Amazing. and uh, several of those guys for that film, which was fun. And then it led to us doing a this documentary about John Panette. Uh, oh. John Panette was in our film, but passed away while we were making it. And so his manager hired us to make a film about John, which has led to us uh, getting to work with Louis C.K. and Bill Burr. And wow. um, and hopefully Seinfeld's on the list. I, I don't know if I could handle being in a room with Seinfeld. I would, might pass out. So that's that's cool oh. that, you've, that you're friendly with him. But um, the, the great thing that you will find about him is that I thought that I spent two days in a hotel in New York waiting for the moment I was going to find. I've done phone interviews with him before. I was about to go and do a face to face with him. And the great thing about him is that everything that you... You, you already love about him not only turns out to be true but for us for, you don't even it's only after he reads the room that you get the holy fuck that was seinfeld thing he walks <laughs> and forget you just think you're chatting to your best mate oh like, that's cool yeah any nerves go straight out the uh the window that, that that's that that project sounds amazing and interestingly my my big break here only occurred because i got a theater a date at a big theater here in canada that was Pinette had in the town where I live, Pinette had books this day and it was the only, and, and so there was no way of me to playing this big theater. And yeah. because of Pinette's tragic death, I got the, got the, got the day. And that was my big wow. moment. Yeah. Could, could, we should interview you for this documentary. <laughs> that would be an incredible story. I'm serious. That would be, we should, we should talk about that after. There's a film coming out about my early years as a, as a, as a comedian this year in England, but, um, and similarly, thing it's 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 real. I mean, sorry, it's it, it's fictional, but we got real comedians in it to kind of be themselves and stuff. But um, but we'll we'll talk over email. Sorry, and yeah, uh, what was Paul's question? Yes, your next project. <laughs> anyway, I don't I don't have anything to pitch right now because everything's either in post or uh, or in production, so nothing really to go check out. Other, you can check out Clean Flicks. That would be cool. Um, I you can check out the podcast though. Whoever's listening to this likes podcasts. I do the horror movie podcast. It's just horrormoviepodcast.com moviestreamcast.com and if you're so inclined i'm not on it as much but the sci-fi podcast.com and you can always find me at one of those places cool james anything to plug this week you must you got mate every time i i get exhausted just looking well, at your social media you've got so much um, stuff uh, going the, on the project that i just announced this morning which i'm excited about is basically um cbc have, have just commissioned a, a filmmaker here in in st john to make uh, what is essentially the definitive documentary on St. John, which is where I live, which is a, ba- a city that people think of as the drive-by city. They think that it's, you know, nothing happening. It's the, the nothing. And actually, there's a load of exciting shit happening here. And, and, and not, not just because I've moved here, but it's kind of happened in, in tandem. Um, so basically, this documentary is going to be about St. John through, through my eyes. Me talking to uh, people who were born here, who moved to New York, set up film companies there, set up architectural firms, then came back here and have continued to do it despite everyone from here saying, you can't do that here, that won't work here. Same thing they said to me when I got here, you can't be a comedian here. So uh, that the project itself excited me, but I wanted it to have the big wow ending that we were just talking about. I wanted it to have the moment. So what I've done is... Uh, 
I proved them all wrong. All the people from here when I moved in said, "I'm going to, you know, I'm a comedian." They go, "Oh, you'll be, you have to work construction in two weeks, mate. That's not going to, that's not going to play out." Um, uh, <laughs> so I kind of proved them wrong by, in the two years I've been here, kind of maintaining uh, what I did in England, playing the same size rooms, but working mm. enough, feeding my family. But the one thing that's never going to happen for me in England, I was never going to be the arena comic. I was never going to be doing the 10,000, 15,000 seaters. So what I've done, and my tickets go on sale on Monday, is I've booked the arena here in St. John, the, the, the 10, 15,000 seaters that normally plays, you know, host to Elton John, ACDC, and Brian Adams. Yeah. Uh, last played host to Jeff Dunham, and before that it was Seinfeld. Um, and I am going to um, sell more tickets than Seinfeld. That's my, that's my goal. <laughs> <laughs> Grassroots <laughs> uh, approach, which is the same thing. You know, Seinfeld might have a lot of pull. He might have made the greatest sitcom of all time. But what he isn't is in St. John, uh, 10 hours a day, being able to walk around the streets, go up to people, handing out flyers and doing it face to face, which is basically how I've always built up my business. So in theory, th- th- so the, throughout the film, I'm going to be obviously talking about this thing. And if people have advice, even though the, pre- the predominant nature of the film is obviously about St. John, the city. And then in theory, the ending is me walking out victorious in front of 10,000 people, or it's me walking out to two people and my whole career is over. And, and I need to move out of my house because I'm putting all my, <laughs> life. Um, but, but I like to, I like a challenge and, uh, I've got three months to pack it out. So, uh, we'll see. But to be honest, I'm kind of, you know, I mean, I, I mean, off the record, kind of not, not off the record, of course it's on the record, but, um, but I'm kind of not worried about it because it's kind of an easy sell, which is that, hey, we've got managed to get this channel to agree to do a documentary about our city. If you don't show up, never complain again. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you can't get people off their asses to come to that, then what can you? So it's kind of a win-win for me in that um, I have this thing steering it. So, I mean, I'm obviously slightly worried, but... Um, you know, you know, what, what, it's, it's no fun if you can sleep at night, right? <laughs> hey, you'll be fine. You're so balls out in in your face. Everyone's well, going to come. We'll on see, you, but you know, uh, yeah, you got you got to try. You got to try. Cool. I'm sorry yeah, for running a tight but, ship tonight, but our, Owen, our producer, he's very, very strict yeah, well, on time. My wife. So... I, got, I was supposed to pick up the kids 20 minutes ago. So, uh, an honour talking to you guys. <laughs> Josh, thank you so much for your input tonight. It's been absolutely yeah. brilliant. And you're an yeah, absolute legend. I had a great legend. time, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much, Josh. Yeah, it's, it really is a genuine honour. And, and I really, really can't wait to check out uh, the rest of your films. Uh, really, really means a lot. Oh, thanks so much. Best of luck with the show and with the podcast. It sounds like you guys are doing a great job. Thanks a lot, man. Appreciate it. Underground Nights is presented by James Mullinger and Paul Field. This episode was produced by Owen Hughes and the music was provided by James Yule. Underground Nights is a part of the Failed Media Network of Podcasts and you can check us out at failedcritics.com or find us on Twitter at UG Nights. Thanks for listening. Josh, what I've got you guys. So, um, some of this might not be interesting to people on, but so when you when you were making Clean Fix, did you did you obviously have to go and get permission from the studios to use the edited clips as well? It was a big it was a big to do. Um, I can imagine. So we, I mean, start, I, we started yeah. out down that road, um, and we had seen uh, there's a there's a really well known 
copyright attorney that works in Hollywood and he, he, he's on the board of the uh, national documentary association and works for Obama. And he basically, if he gives you the green light, you're okay to use it in, in fair use. And so because it's a documentary, um, it it can pass as fair use, but it is very strict in terms of the way we're allowed to use the footage. We had to cut a couple of the clips out and the, uh, there's a Jay and Silent Bob clip, for instance, that was borderline, and they would not clear that one. We had to go get permission to use that one. Interesting. Um, so, so in a situation yeah. where you're using, like, so if you're comparing Private Ryan to Private Ryan, that that makes sense in the documentary remit. But then, say, like with Clockwork Orange, where you're using it in a narrative way. Yeah, you then have to go to Warner for. Yeah, that is one that that was another one that came up, but they they ultimately cleared it. The, uh, the Clockwork. Um, what was the other big one that was difficult to use? Um, well, the one thing you, the one thing you, you can do is you can use it to tell your story. So when you talk about a narrative or what you're not allowed to do is do what we do with Jay and Silent Bob, which is just use it to tell the joke that they're telling. Right. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. Yeah. So, um, we, you have to repurpose it in some way. Uh, you have to use it to make a a new point in some way. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it's it's been a while since I thought about that, but yeah, that's that's basically the uh, the guidelines we were given. They looked at every single movie clip we we had. We cut probably five or six out of the film. We didn't feel like we could lose the Jay and Silent Bob clip, so we petitioned hard to use that. But it was right around the time the Weinstein Company had started, and so no one knew even who owned it. Like we were we were talking to the Weinstein Company, they're like, "Oh no, that Disney still owns that because it's Dimension," and it took us quite a while to even track down. <laughs> who didn't give us the rights to that clip it's so interesting because for for me like that i guess for the first maybe someone who's not as sorry guys maybe someone that's not as into film or kind of knows the ins and outs of it would be as curious but when 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 king flick starts like for the first 20 minutes before the kind of reveal that he's buying one and copying one type thing. Yeah. Like my, I'm just like on the, my jaws on the ground going, how the, how the fuck are they getting away with? Like, how are they, how yeah. was this even a thing for a minute, let alone, um, anyway, we'll, we'll obviously talk about it in more detail later, but it's amazing. I, and again, I can't believe that I hadn't ever heard of that movement of that yeah. happening. Well, it's back and rampant now with the internet. I mean, our film kind of ends with the postscript of, oh, well, it's starting online. Well, now it is huge right. online. I, I bet. I bet. And no one's paying for it now, probably. <laughs> Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 